Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from the political scandals, the love affairs, the battles waged, and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it, by reading different authors from the ancient past and comparing their stories. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. Hello and welcome to a brand new special episode of The Partial Historians. We are super excited to have with us today Dr. Jeremy J. Swiss. Jeremy is a lecturer in the Department of Classical Studies at Brandeis University. He holds a PhD in Classics, looking at the reception of the Seven Kings of Rome in Imperial Historiography, all the way from Tiberius, Dr. Rad's favourite, to Theodosius. Uh, I don't know whose favourite he might be. I hope he's nobody's favorite. <laughs> Hopefully not. He's bound to be somebody's on somebody's list. So for all the Theodosius fans out there, hurrah. Jeremy's research covers everything from historiography, ancient rhetoric, late antiquity, the life and times of the Emperor Julian, and classical reception in metal music. And it is this topic that we're going to be looking at today. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's uh, it's an honor. Awesome. Well, we're going to kick off with probably, hopefully, the most straightforward question we could possibly throw at you. But this is necessary because this is an area we haven't really ventured into before. Exactly what is metal music? And in your view, how does it become entwined with classical reception? Well, this is a question where when you ask somebody who knows a lot about it, uh, they can't give you a straightforward answer. Um, and it's true, certainly with heavy metal, uh, because it is hard to define, uh, and that's kind of the beauty of it is it's so versatile. Um, but essentially, it is a form of heavy rock music that developed uh, in the beginning of the 1970s with bands like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple, uh, and uh, evolved away partly from its rock roots into various types of subgenres that uh, focus on kind of certain styles. But it essentially still has a lot in common with rock and roll, electric guitars, electric bass, uh, you know, a a full drum kit, and uh, usually a vocalist, uh, though a metal vocalist uh, tends to sing, you know, with more intensity, both melodically and very unmelodically, if you get into more uh, extreme genres. And again, uh, you know, when you read about heavy metal, you know, they focus on, you know, the word heavy metal itself. It's heavy, it is, you know, very highly amplified and distorted guitar riffs. The drumming is very kind of punchy and in your face. But on the other hand, metal can be all sorts of tempos. There is very slow metal that is uh, kind of very, this creates this oppressive atmosphere that has these sort of almost uh, melancholy and depressing sort of vibes to it. But there's also very fast metal, uh, like speed metal and various forms of black metal, death metal that, you know, essentially the drum 
beat is called a blast beat where you just hit the snare as as fast as you can over and over uh to create this just this pure outpouring of aggression so i'm not a musicologist so i'm not going to kind of go more into kind of the musical definitions because uh i think that heavy metal is a lot more than just a style of music or a, a grouping of styles of music with similar you know instrumentation uh heavy metal is also defined thematically and again this goes back to the early 70s uh with bands like black sabbath that developed in places like the industrial working class neighborhoods of birmingham england and uh black sabbath music okay and other similar bands were using their music to respond to this industrialized capitalist modernity that was kind of decaying and developing around them and that from which they were feeling alienated and dehumanized uh, and powerless. And heavy metal uh, became a way to respond to this by kind of taking out aggression, channeling aggression into this aggressive um, heavy music. And originally, you know, with songs like War Pigs from Black Sabbath's second album. It became it became kind of the heir to you know protest music and anti-war music in the '60s, um, but it went beyond that uh, in kind of confronting a lot of kind of the evils of reality, whether it's political evils. You know, this was during the Cold War and you know the uh, threat of nuclear apocalypse, uh, but also dealing with you know the dark side of the human condition, human mortality, um, as well as themes like addiction and depression. And in this way, you know, it uh, confronted these things a lot more pessimistically than, say, the rock music of the late 60s was much more optimistic. And also it uh, was, it developed an interest in themes of the occult, themes of fantasy and horror that uh, it took inspiration from, you know, say, the literature of Lovecraft or from the horror movies of the 60s. And they wanted to create kind of uh, a musical kind of version of creating that sort of atmosphere because they realized that we humans are often drawn to those types of themes, you know, on kind of a visceral level. And the idea that something taboo or something that is paranormal or just outside of you know normal human experience you know fascinates us and it draws us in because it's strange and i think that heavy metal fills that need and this relates to kind of the idea that heavy metal provides these sorts of uh narratives of escape from the present day and into these kind of contexts where you're confronting evil, but you're also in a way embodying it uh, because this is creates it sort of a space where, you know, you can break these taboos, at least through kind of a fantasy. And I think that's, that leads into, I think, anticipating where we're going to go in this conversation, uh, where I think the key is to why heavy metal is interested in antiquity is if you're going to reject modernity, then often there will be paths into pre-modernity 
as an alternative space. Um, so I'll uh, <laughs> stop it there because there's a lot more I could say on that topic. But uh, but I think this is a really know. good segue in because there's a sense mm-hmm. in which metal is coming out of this really kind of like hostile social environment that's developing in the 70s. We're seeing a really challenging period that people are going through and the extension of that over time and the way that the challenges that have manifested in that decade have then been perpetuated and altered across subsequent decades have really given people a sense in which they need this kind of music in order to be able to express their existential frustration. But also Mm -hmm. then how do you find an alternative? Like what could life be like? And not to say that there's necessarily some positive correlations here, but you can't, if you just have a void that becomes a hugely negative space, how do you tap into something different? And the classical world seems to be one of these areas that the genre is tapping into as one, an alternative, but also a suggestion of maybe the extension of corruption throughout all time as well. And I think this leads really nicely to thinking about ideas about masculinity in the ancient world, Um, particularly the Roman sense of masculinity embodied in this concept of virtus. It's really quite narrow and precise in terms of what it permits. And part of that is like expressions on the battlefield, the idea that you would always take your wounds at the front rather than the back. Um, That idea of courage in battle um, is one of these things. And one of these questions I think that might be tied up with this is the question around masculinity in the modern era. And maybe there's something there as well. Um, But how is ancient Roman ideas about masculinity, how is this being treated in metal music in your view? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so there are similarities with Roman concepts of virtus, uh, and then, but there's also departures when it comes to heavy metal. So I'll start with sort of the similarities here. So heavy metal again is about empowerment, right? Uh, experiencing ways, you know, whether as a musician or as a fan or, you know, uh, as a as a community that you can kind of regain a sense of strength and power and control, you know, in a modern environment in which you feel that you've been deprived of that, right? Uh, and so looking at these figures of strength and individuality, like Julius Caesar, like gladiators, uh, like Spartacus, like, you know, Scipio and the rest, you know, these become sort of an ideal to aspire to. And the fact that they have a basis in historical reality makes them even more compelling as, well, look, this is not only, you know, something to aspire to, but this is something that used to be the case, right? Uh, And so this is something... Uh, with precedent that we could go back to, okay, at least in the context of these fantasies of empowerment. Okay? We can talk later about how this sort of romanticism of you know the classical past can have a political uh, resonance that can be taken in unfortunate directions. But you know, for the majority of people listening or playing metal, you know, when you have like album artwork of these sort of really muscly, you know, kind of man of war type of Conan the Barbarian heroes, um, you know, and you sing songs about, you know, swords and sorcery and all of that, you know, it's like the equivalent of like playing like Total War or something, or just like video games where you can sort of 
take out these aggressions and feel powerful in a context that is safe. So to get to that idea of virtus itself, so again, the majority of classical reception of Roman themes in heavy metal is, you know, in themes of military history, right? Uh, we have bands in Italy and Europe and across the world that uh, have, that sing about the Punic Wars. Some have concept albums on the Punic Wars, as well as there's a lot of interest in Julius Caesar in both the Gallic Wars, as well as the Civil Wars and uh, various other figures. Um, I think you'll find that there's a lot, there's interest in figures like Trajan, for instance. Uh, there's some stuff there. So the idea of, yeah, courage and the ability to kind of march out onto the battlefield uh, and stand your ground um, is very is very compelling, though it's interesting that in the reception of Rome, you don't see as much of that as you do in like the reception of like other figures like the heroes of Homer or even Alexander the Great, figures that were known for actually like taking a sword and spear and shield and going into battle, fighting in the front lines and, and killing people. Whereas, you know, people like Caesar and Trajan, while they were great leaders and they may have, you know, actually fought hand to hand at times, they're not actually, you know, like Achilles or Alexander right up front there. So the other aspect of Weirtus that you don't see so much in metal, though, is Weirtus is not just about kind of the outward display of courage and um, military prowess. It's also the exertion of control of one over oneself, right? Self-control is a big part of Weirtus because the idea is that in order to be fit to control others, okay, as you know, the proper Roman man is seen to be, uh, you have to be master of yourself, right? Both as in terms of your impulses, uh, you have to maintain, you know, sueritas, gravitas, austerity. Um, and so if you're seen indulging in extravagance or luxury, and certainly in sexual incontinence, you know, that is seen as diminishing your masculinity because you are not controlling yourself, right? You're not exer exercising power. Uh, instead, you are letting other things control you. So metal, on the other hand, at least for the most part, in addition to being this sort of channel of rebellious and aggressive instincts uh, against various systems of control, is also, on the flip side, celebrates the liberation of these animal instincts. You know, again, these fantasies of indulging in these passions and it also, it's a celebration of the irrational in many ways. You know, I sort of compare metal to like the worship of Dionysus, which of course, in a, what was it, 187 BCE when uh, they, the, the cult of Dionysus came in and uh, was it Cato the Elder uh, said, <laughs> this is the opposite. This is, is going to turn our, our manly men into, uh, into not so manly men. And this is going to corrupt society. Um, and so interestingly you do not see that aspect of weirdness in metal so much though there is sort of a complicated relationship with it because especially in like metal's reception of various feminine figures like and especially powerful women like cleopatra or sort of the concept of the witch which is very popular in metal i think betrays a sort of anxiety over losing one's masculine control by becoming sort of subservient to 
one's sexual impulses and therefore under the spell quite literally and figuratively of of a feminine figure you know of a temptress if you will that sounds right. so familiar so <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and though and that's one reason like for example the myth of medusa in perseus is so popular in metal all over the place is because there i think that there's there's also that idea of masculine anxiety and that this myth sort of is the archetype of overcoming it's so interesting do you find that therefore metal is something that attracts male listeners more than female listeners because of these sorts of themes i don't think so so i mean we're talking when we're talking about like classical reception in metal you know the vast majority of the themes are traditionally you know masculine themes but that doesn't prevent you know people who don't identify as men from listening to it and enjoying it and being inspired by it. There's certainly plenty of metal out there that uh, engages with antiquity that, you know, sees figures like Boudicca and Zenobia and Tomyris as these, as these positive examples of women being warriors and compatible with kind of the heavy metal hero kind of uh, type. Uh, Though, of course, you also have a lot of, Beyond that, most of kind of the reception of like figures from antiquity that are women like Medusa and Cleopatra and Messalina usually are more kind of perpetuating what people like Juvenal and Procopius uh, and, you know, and Suetonius wrote about them, right? These sort of uh, these stereotypes of the powerful scheming woman who is sexually voracious uh, and... uh, destroys men like that's a big theme and like the reception of cleopatra is how she kind of bewitched mark antony and that and deprived him of his masculinity and that goes all the way back to plutarch and even before it strikes me that there's a really interesting tension here between what um, might be being set up as the exploration of taboo passions that is coming through Mm -hmm. in some elements of this genre of music but then also the kind of attendant traditional I should I'm using my flesh rabbits um traditional dangers um Mm -hmm. that uh Roman masculinity and Western masculinity in general seem to fear Mm -hmm. about having those passions sort of turned against them in a way that disempowers them and so Mm -hmm. but it seems like it's embracing both options here in a way which is really quite fascinating Mm -hmm. yeah and I think again it's uh you know metal has just a general interest in the irrational side of human nature in whatever form it takes and especially when that goes to extremes right um and i think that's kind of a universal kind of aspect of metal that appeals to you know people of any gender and metal was traditionally again out of appeal to this kind of working class white european male and north american male kind of audience and so for several decades you know and it continues to be a largely you know the majority white male dominated genre at least in terms of like the most popular bands however in the 50 years that you know since black sabbath started things up um there's been much more diversification and inclusion in the metal scene and more and more women and people of color are becoming, you know, more prominent and respected and musicians, journalists, fans. And, you know, you go to a metal show and it varies by genre. You go to a metal show and the gender ratio is still usually in favor of men, but it's, it's getting better and there's a long way to go, but it's certainly a less hostile environment for people of under 
privileged backgrounds uh, in that scene. And it's interesting that that's sort of the case, but if you look at like the reception of various Roman figures in metal, the most popular Roman figures are in fact Caligula and Nero. <laughs> and there's various reasons for this, but like these are not the first people you think of when you think of like a powerful general or warrior on the battlefield. Like they didn't really do that. But they were irrational. So if it's about the rationality <laughs> then, yes. Right. <laughs> yeah, so, but they seem to be the most popular because not because they had kind of that kind of weirdness or they didn't have any weirdness at all, but it's because they had license to indulge in every sort of irrational passion, you know, the extremes of, you know, sexual license, cruelty, that at least, you know, the sources that came down to us would represent them as, um, but also kind of as how, you know, popular culture represented them. So, you know, some of the first songs on Caligula clearly were written after watching that, you know, that, that porno flick. That... <laughs> yeah. A classic. Right. Malcolm right. McDowell. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And stuff like that. And so that felt like it, it resonated with the idea that metal celebrates kind of these kind of over the top kind of figures who indulge in, um, you know, unrestricted, you know, sex and violence and drug use and all of that, sort of that kind of stereotypical kind of rock star lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And because they're Roman emperors, they have in, they have complete freedom yes. to do this without, usually without consequence. Apart uh, <laughs> from being know, assassinated. Eventually has its limits. But the thing is, is that Metal is interesting in sort of inverting sort of the evaluation here because it recognizes that, yes, they did all these terrible things, but they're remembered for it. They went down in history mm. doing this. In a way, they really lived. <laughs> exactly. That's, yeah, they, this was like, this was like the most extreme distillation of pure humanity because I think what metal ultimately recognizes is that human beings are, are animals, right? They are not angels. They're not, they are, they have a lot more to do with beasts than they have to do with gods, right? I think this is a good moment to bring in um, the connection that seems to come up in the metal genre at times of this connection between certain Roman emperors and also Satan as a, a particular sort of crossover figure, because there's kind of like this sort of animalistic element and I don't think, as a Roman historian, it's never really struck me to think of Roman emperors as being particularly satanic, but it seems to be something that's quite, it has a certain type of popularity in the genre. So I'm really interested in those sorts of connections as well. Um, what is happening there, do you think? You know, I think to understand how we got to Roman emperors having these kind of satanic residences, you know, we have to think about like, you know, what does the devil have to do with heavy metal. And I think this goes all the way back to kind of Satan as this sort of romantic hero, right? That we see, you know, uh, prefigured in Milton's Paradise Lost, where, you know, Satan becomes this sort of epic hero that Milton obviously doesn't want you to sympathize with him. But on the other hand, you kind of do, right? Because you can sort of see his point of view where, you know, he, he kind of is this ultimate figure of rebellion against tyranny, the tyranny of religion, or that just the, the idea that, you know, he is 
tragically defiant. And I think that's a big thing in heavy metal is this idea that we're born to lose, I think is what Lemmy Kilmister said. Um, The idea that even though it may be hopeless to fight against the establishment or any of these systems of control, the defiance is what matters, you know, defiance for its own stake, even though you're ultimately doomed to fail, just as, you know, as Satan was in Paradise Lost. And I think, you know, that sort of figure kind of developed definitely into the romantic period as like the idea of the Byronic hero, right? These figures that they are compelling, not because they're good, but because they do not so good things, but yet we're still fascinated by them and we identify with them to some degree. And I think that kind of prefigures how Satan is is uh, received in heavy metal as, again, this figure of ultimate individualism. He committed the ultimate act of defiance, and he represents not just the negation of all systems that seek to control you, but also, again, the liberation of every sort of animal passion from these systems of control. So very much like Dionysus, but with the added aspect that he is an ultimate anti-Christian symbol and heavy metal, you know, traditionally developed in majority Christian countries. Uh, And so by the 80s, we start seeing more kind of anti-Christian and satanic themes develop because when the music was developing and kind of pushing itself more into extremes, you know, it had to find what was the ultimate kind of taboo symbolism in order to express one's drive toward transgression and assertion of individualism. And again, this, this is the legacy also of shock rock in the 70s with Alice Cooper and Kiss and everything. There's kind of sort of the logical conclusion of that. Um, and that's really how it began. Bands like Venom in England uh, and Bathory in Sweden, you know, they were adopting these themes of Satan uh, and everything, you know, not because they were theological Satanists, right? Or even Levian Satanists. They were just like, this is, this is how I express transgression, you know, in the ex- most extreme way. However, you know, as heavy metal developed into the late 80s, into the 90s, and moving forward, a lot of these kind of ideas were taken more seriously. And we see the development of more anti-Christian themes out of serious conviction. And this is partly to do because Christianity became an easy scapegoat uh, and sort of, we're basically going to use this as a symbol of every system of conformity or control, not just religiously, but politically, economically, culturally. Okay. And this is where classical reception finally comes in. We finally get into it. Okay. So if Christianity becomes this ultimate symbol of what heavy metal stands against, okay, and you know, Satan becomes this sort of figure that, you know, this ultimate anti-Christian figure, suddenly themes of certain themes from ancient Rome, especially become attractive. So we start seeing an interest developing in the late eighties, going into the nineties and moving forward in themes of the persecutions of Christians under the pagan Roman empire. So for instance, a German thrash metal band creator had a song called blind faith in 1986 or 1987, where Essentially, they used a story about just sort of a generic story of like Christians, you know, being uh, executed in the Colosseum, fed to the lines and everything as sort of a, a way to critique 
religion and faith, uh, where it's like, you know, where's your savior now? Kind of kind of message. Um, it's sort of like taking martyrdom and kind of putting it and turning it on its head. And so the Romans before Christianity sort of become sort of these kind of kindred spirits as this culture that also came to be opposed to Christianity, or at least that's how kind of the sources give us. And a lot of these actually, you know, sources manufactured by Christians about how the extent of the persecutions, right. Uh, but those were, you know, taken as by face value by, by metal because, because it was useful to kind of express this idea that Rome was, or before Christianity, Rome was a society that opposed Christianity for all the right reasons. And for the same reasons that metal uses Christianity, whether it's out of conviction or not as sort of this, as this, as this scapegoat. And so this then ties into the idea that Roman emperors, especially emperors like Nero, like Diocletian, okay. And there's even a few songs on Decius and, and, and more of the more obscure ones, but especially Nero, because he is the archetypal persecutor, someone who has not only did they historically persecute Christians, but also they were themselves people like Satan, who had, you know, ultimate power and freedom, you know, they were the ultimate kind of individual who could had ultimate freedom to do whatever they wanted, right? Indulge in every sort of carnal passion, the extremes of cruelty and violence and everything. Okay? So that's sort of how the satanic resonance comes in here. Okay? But we have the added kind of layer of there's actually historical precedence for this. And it's almost like because this person actually existed in history, they become even more compelling than this sort of nebulous and also just kind of cliche, you know, kind of Satan in metal. It's just like, oh, we sing songs about Satan. Oh, that's 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 so <laughs> that's that's so 1980. That's so 1983. That's cute. Right? <laughs> uh, and so and so like imposing sort of that symbolism onto actual history or at least you know, what they perceive as actual history. I think it just makes it more interesting. Yeah, for right? sure. And like this idea, like particularly when they're delving into the less well-known emperors as well, you get the sense that there's definitely research going on here informing this. I'm just curious because when I was reading your work, it was so interesting the way that you highlighted the fact that even though technically their message is anti-Christian, they are actually perpetuating Christian perspectives on what happened because people who do study Rome in more depth, as you've highlighted, know that the persecutions weren't really that mm -hmm. constant. They didn't last for that long. They weren't as severe as I think popular culture often imagines, probably mm -hmm. because of the stuff that I study, right. which is like the 1950s epics like Quo Vadis, mm -hmm. right? That's probably implanted in everyone's mind that Christians were always treated terribly and herded mm -hmm. into arenas to be mowed down by beasts or gladiators. But this isn't really speaking to the reality that we can look at from sources that aren't Christian. So can you expand on that a little bit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can connect Satan to this too, because, you know, Satan is a Christian figure. In order to believe that Satan exists theologically, you're essentially, you're, you're essentially believing that Christianity, Christian theology is, is true. And again, I do focus on how a lot of these, a lot of extreme metal bands sort of doing this. There's more traditional styles of metal, like power metal, traditional heavy metal, doom metal, where anti-Christian messages 
can be expressed, but it's it's a lot less frequent. And in fact, there's you know millions of people who are practicing or just believing Christians, you know, also are heavy metal fans uh, and are heavy metal musicians, and they they have a complicated relationship with this music, uh, especially the more <laughs> extreme stuff. But uh, they're they're largely pretty tolerant of, it and they realize that you know there's there's it's more kind of a symbolic thing rather than you know sort of a political agenda that's out to get them and everything. So when we talk about just like the reception of Rome as sort of an anti-Christian symbol, I'm talking mostly about black metal bands, death metal bands that are looking at this um, extreme metal, both in terms of extreme music, but also just extreme themes and to some degree, extreme people who are attracted to it. But what I find interesting, especially about the theme of persecutions in metal by uh, with these bands kind of all over the place uh, is that they're singing about what was essentially the establishment punching down on a minority group, right? And generally metal always identifies with the underdog. That's one reason like the Spartans are so popular in heavy metal. They're one of the most popular themes is because they identified the Spar- the 300 uh, at Thermopylae, especially as like the underdogs against a superior force. And again, the idea that it's not the fact that they lost that it's the fact that they stood defiant. Okay. That matters. And which is sort of kind of what was the, the original charisma of martyrdom, right. Was that, you know, these people were willing to die in the arena or in whatever context, you know, for their faith and that their defiant testified, right. That's what martyr means to their, to their faith. And so metal sort of takes the same thing where it's, you know, we celebrate these figures, you know, who do that. But then again, but then we have these ideas that like, we're going to celebrate people like Alexander, or we're going to celebrate people like, not necessarily celebrate, you know, that's a strong word. It's like, we're going to take an interest in this um, as to sort of express our kind of antipathy to modernity here. And so I think the reason, the way it's justified, and this is, is the same way that sort of anti-Christian sentiments and messages in extreme metal generally are tolerated is the fact that, again, this is the majority religion of most of the countries in which metal is being produced. And so because it is currently the majority religion um, in those societies, you know, it is okay to talk about these themes. Whereas if a band had anti-Jewish or anti-Islamic themes, they would be considered right-wing and they would be shunned. And there are bands like that, that have, that, you know, have exist on the very fringes of right-wing ideology that do these things, but generally they are looked down upon because again, it's punching down. I just find that an interesting paradox. It suggests in a way that by playing around with ideas about Christianity in particular, even whether they're aligning it with ancient Rome or ancient Greece or otherwise, in a way, there's a sense in which it is conforming to the mainstream in an unexpected way mm-hmm. by doing so. Because as you say, you've got these other bands that are going in this different direction, but it's definitely considered punching down and largely inappropriate mm-hmm. um, and quite fringe. I don't know if I want to go into the fascist territory of this. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> it definitely wasn't on our list of questions. <laughs> um, but I, I am interested in the sort of imagery that comes through 
in the artwork and in the way that bands present themselves on stage um, mm. in terms of how that might tap into classical reception as well in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so there's some bands that do this very explicitly, like Ex Deo from Canada and Deos from France, for in- for instance, and, and Aid from, or Ade rather, from, from Italy, where they're on stage, they're wearing at least spirit Halloween, robe and arbor, and all of that stuff. Uh, and they're really into it, and they're sort of, you know, play acting this. But there's just a couple of those bands. I'm I'm actually more interested in bands that like don't do classical reception like consistently or even have like concept albums. The, those are certainly fascinating to study for like these kind of, they do kind of deep dives into this, but uh, I'm interested in how to bands that kind of do these one-off songs on these various themes and, and how those songs kind of fit into their more general concept as a band. Other scholars like, like Chris Fletcher, for instance, at Louisiana State University will, he also looks at bands that have, those wider concepts, like there's a band from Italy called Stormlord that has a an album on the Aeneid called Hesperia, which is really cool. In terms of artwork, I'm also very interested in how they play with that because, you know, the lyrics, you know, have various degrees of engagement with antiquity. I look at lyrics that just use sort of like a passing reference to a mythological or historical figure, or I see lyrics that are explicitly devoted to like retelling story of a battle or like the career of someone like Alexander. One thing I have to keep reminding myself is that these are lyrics and especially for some bands where their vocals are quite distorted, you can't always understand the lyrics and a lot of people consuming the music may not even read the lyrics uh, in order to figure out what's being said. And because the thing is, is that it's, you know, it's the music that people are coming to it for and if they can connect the lyrics to the music and that becomes meaningful all the better but ultimately evaluating a band critically by its lyrics is like studying greek tragedy and just reading the text and not realizing that this was performed in a specific time and place with music and visuals and acting and and all sorts of stuff on a you know, for a festival of Dionysus and all that. And so artwork is something I like to pay a lot of attention to because that is definitely something that the consumer of this music sees before anything else, right? They associate the music with those images, especially if they've collect vinyl, they got big thing of it and they, they like to display and everything. Uh, and so, you know, I look at that a lot too. And I feel that classical themes, classical artwork, architecture, and fantasy artwork style representations of myths uh, and, and history, they sell. Metal fans tend to, really, tend to really like that. So there's two examples I'd like to bring up of how this is effective and how it kind of ties into some of the wider things. So I'll start with a more traditional style metal band called Wrathblade. They're from Greece. And so a lot of their music uh, deals with mythological themes, which is natural that, you know, they'll tap into kind of their heritage. And this goes back into the idea that, you know, pre-modernity, as I would call it, you know, is a way to kind of tapping into this as an alternative kind of way to reconnect to a place where they feel they're not so alienated by current reality. And what I like about this band is that, you know, they're not just going to the stock themes, they are actually diving deep into 
the sources for stories that are asking to be told, but nobody knows about. Um, and so their vocalist is nicknamed Nick Narsamas, and they wrote a song, which is basically a song that was the basis for the album artwork to this album called Wrath of the Deep Unleashed. And it's a song about a earthquake and tsunami that destroyed the Greek city of uh, Hecale in, I believe, 354 BCE. And basically, this is, I think, in Pausanias or somewhere where they talk about how the citizens of this of this polis had offended Poseidon somehow, like they didn't accept his cult statue coming in there or something like that. And as a result, Poseidon was angry. And so he decided to just destroy the city, cause earthquakes and a tsunami to come in. Oh. Uh, and so, and so Rathblade wrote this song called Submersion, which basically kind of tells that tale. Um, and so specific. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And then, but the best part is that song which is great, corresponds to the album artwork where basically you have this Greek looking city with like the temples, they have like terracotta roof tiles, columns and everything, but there's like fissures in the ground and fire and everything's (laughs) kind of falling over. And then over the city is a giant tidal wave that's about to engulf it. And standing (laughs) above that tidal wave is the most jacked Poseidon you'll ever (laughs) see. Okay, he's clearly Poseidon, he's got the crown, he's got the trident, but he's just got, you know, but he's just like Arnold like Schwarzenegger. Poseidon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's just, yeah, he's uh yeah, he he hits the gym a lot. Uh and <laughs> I just feel like this is you just look at that and you're just like, damn. <laughs> that is uh, you know, you know, Poseidon, if you if you know your mythology, Poseidon is not somebody that you would is not a good person right no, uh, but if you look no. at this artwork and listen to this song you just sort of you do nevertheless feel inspired by this sort of symbol of like excessive power and strength and this ability to just destroy the city because he got pissed off right? <laughs> it's also the elements isn't it i mean you know being right. god of the sea you know yeah. And the power of the underwater workout. I mean, we know it's tough. (laughs) When you have to do it all the time, this is what happens. Yeah. Yeah. You you probably see that Onion article. uh, Was it Michael Phelps, the strange father Poseidon, you know, uh, (laughs) scene in the scene in the scene in the in the audience of the Olympics. That's that's essentially what's going on. Um, So that's one example. And the other also worth mentioning you know nick barsamas he's in other bands he was the vocalist for a band called serpent rider out of california and they had a song called pour forth circuitous uh which is a song about like a really obscure episode from apollonius's argonautica when like polydeuces has a boxing match with this like king amicus and he was just this king who anybody who showed up had to like face him in a boxing match and he usually won and and killed them in the process but you know finally pollux kind of or polydeuces came and put an end to this but anyway so that's one example another example of artwork i find really compelling on the roman side of things is this french band it's a death metal band called autocrator and that's the as you know that's the greek word for emperor and their debut album 
is called Out of Krator, and, and every song of the album is dedicated to a different Roman. I love that. <laughs> nice. All right. <laughs> and the emperors that this band sings about are the emperors who were known either for just being tyrants and kind of embodying evil as these satanic figures, but also the ones that were, you know, anti-Christian persecutors. So the album has songs on Diocletian, but also on Nero and Caligula and Caracalla, mm. interestingly. Uh, you know, he, he does live a there. life of excess. Um, yeah, that tracks, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So it, it seems that like these, this, the people who wrote this album, you know, they read not only Suetonius, but they, it looks like they were also reading the Astoria Augusta. Um, and so like, again, the sources were sensationalizing. And so like, again, sensationalized over the top extravagance of like tyrants, you know, become really compelling. And so, and the music is like really heavy and aggressive. And so it really fits the theme, but the artwork to this album and, and also their latest album called Persecution. Uh, I really like the theme where it's like their the first album, the de- uh, debut album has like the statue of some emperor supposed to be in the foreground and like the Colosseum's in the background and like the atmosphere is all like red and black and like murky. And it's like, it's basically hell, right? It's hell on earth, but it's Rome. And I think this connects to the idea that like Rome kind of represents this sort of anti-heaven as, you know, the city of man versus the city of God, Mm -hmm. if you will, Um, that uh, this is the context in which Roman emperors are these sort of satanic figures that represent everything that Christianity is not or that modernity is not. But also like the idea that emperors are these sort of bringers of death. Right. And these sort of themes of mortality. And so the statue of this emperor has like zombie eyes (laughs) and everything. They look they look like they're resurrected from Mm. the dead, Uh, but they're holding a scepter. So because and a sword kind of representing their power and their ability to do violence. And this album came out in 2015, but it was only recently that I realized that with the exception of of what they kind of altered the head, the statue is actually a statue of Antinous. Oh. <laughs> wow. What the hell? It's, the, yeah. it's, it's the statue of Antinous as Dionysus. Nice. Wow. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, holding a well, thyrsus. Well, the statues of him, to be fair. <laughs> I think they've made some deliberate choices there. Great, because, you know, uh, Dionysus is, you know, uh, I think one of the gods of heavy metal is Dionysus because he, he represents transgression, right? Uh, the idea of liberation from just control, but even your own identity, right? When you go into a metal show, you dress differently, especially if you're performing, you know, you sing these songs where you become these other people, you become Spartans, okay? You become Boudicca, you become, you know, Elizabeth Bathory or whatever. And yeah, there's a lot more you can say there. And of course there's, you know, at a show, there's certainly the uses of certain, substances to enhance this sort of Dionysiac experience but anyway so I I thought that was interesting that they chose that particular definitely oh yeah and then their latest album which came out this year called Persecution sort of continues that theme they have a song about Domitian which actually uh, interprets 666 from the book of Revelation is actually not numerology for Nero, but actually n- numerology for, for Domitian. <laughs> I'm sure Texas would approve. Uh, I feel like Domitian would approve as well, because yeah. he always feels hard done by, and he's like, right. finally, I'm getting my due. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. He there's a, there's a, there's only a handful of songs on Domitian out there, and I feel he kind of is overlooked because he's overshadowed by the Neros and Caligulas of the world, right? So, even though like their sources would consider Domitian like on their level in terms of just being ultimate tyrant. Oh, in terms of paranoia, I think he was right up there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course he had this. He had this own god complex, right? Dominus et Deus, right? That's another act, ultimate act of rebellion against the gods is to declare yourself a god yourself. So the, the latest album, Persecution, is also interesting because it's the same style as the first album. The background in, is not the Colosseum, but it's actually the temple of Antoninus and Faustina that's in the forum. You know, the one that... Uh, the one that, you know, it was, it's got the, the colonnade in the front, but behind it is the church that it was turned into. So that's like what's in the background. And again, it's this hellish atmosphere and everything. And then in the foreground is the equestrian statue of Marcus Aurelius that's on, <laughs> that's on, the, that's on the Campidolio. Uh, yeah yeah we'll just shift it down the hill that's fine right right uh (laughs) and i find it very interesting they chose marcus aurelius for this because he's like not known as like no you know your typical heavy heavy metal emperor you know he was very (laughs) it's all about uh, being very calm (laughs) yeah that kind of stoic kind of calm and control and he was known for just being ethically good even though he he did actually like try to commit genocide in and up in the up in central europe and everything no such thing as a good emperor but it's interesting that marcus aurelius there's a few metal songs on him kind of and sort of the idea of it's almost like there's some elements in metal that are recognizing that stoic figures can also fit notions of masculinity as this again this sort of self-discipline and the idea that in order to be a proper warrior or to be a proper man you have to discipline mm. yourself um, and so there is there is some of that in metal as well um, so it's not all Motley crew kind of uh, carnal self-indulgence <laughs> to its extremes. Um, there's some genres of metal where that individualism is extended to kind of being self-sufficient. And in order to reject modernity, you have to be capable of existing in a state of nature, essentially. Right. Uh, which is, again, why antiquity becomes so compelling is because it, it becomes this context in which you can exist and be validated as your own authentic self. So, Jeremy, we can't, of course, let you go without talking about my favorite man from antiquity, who's also been the star of the silver screen, Spartacus. Can you tell me any examples where metal bands use Spartacus or refer to Spartacus in their music? Mm-hmm. Yep, there are certainly uh, a number of songs on Spartacus. Again, uh, metal loves to celebrate the underdog, and Spartacus is one of the ultimate symbols of kind of the rebellion of the oppressed against the establishment, uh, but also sort of this... Not it's not the fact that he was successful because he wasn't, uh, but the fact that he stood defiant uh, is an inspiration enough, right? And so um, there are concept albums on Spartacus in the Third Servile War, and certainly I'm sure some of them had to do with the Star series. But uh, <laughs> I want to go back to one of the first songs on Spartacus that I find one of the most interesting, uh, and this goes back to 1986 from a traditional heavy metal band from Los Angeles called Sound Barrier. 
and they released a song on their second album called Gladiator. And yes, it's a song about Spartacus, and it's about his idea that uh, you know he's this powerful warrior who's going to um, you know to free all the rest, right, uh, and resist Roman tyranny. Uh, but there's this interesting lyric that says he's comes from the city of Sparta, uh, <laughs> which is essentially like assuming that he's called Spartacus because he's from Sparta rather than Thrace or whatever. They didn't um, read that they didn't and read then there's the, And I think there's this implicit assumption that if you're from Sparta, then you're the ultimate warrior. Yeah. Okay? So uh, of course the ultimate warrior from this, very much oppressive slaveholding society uh, <laughs> is going to is going to be the leader of the slave revolt because they need somebody like that to be capable of uh, I don't think they're reading that much into it. Nah. Why I find this one of the most compelling songs about Spartacus is that Sound Barrier is one of the first all black heavy metal bands. Uh, yeah. And so I feel that there is another uh, layer of resonance for why a figure like Spartacus would appeal to them specifically, but also how it fits into kind of the rebellious core of heavy metal itself from the beginning. And it's just a fun song to listen to, just Gladiator by Spartacus. And uh, and, and again, Gladiator in general are pretty popular, again, as these, these right, these infames, right? These figures that uh, are the underdogs, they are considered the lowest of the low, but on the other hand, they can prove themselves and free themselves through, you know, sheer will and strength and violence to escape that condition or at least die trying. And that's something that resonates with kind of a, kind of a heavy metal aesthetic, certainly. So Spartacus is like this ultimate gladiator who not only earns his own freedom, but he does it for the benefit of a group of the oppressed, or at least tries. No, it's, it sounds a bit like as you like a lot of the themes that you've been talking about. And while, as you say, there are just so many examples to look at, it sounds like a lot of bands are relying on this very pop culture, romanticized view of something or other, or this sensationalized view of things, whether it's Messalina or whether it's Spartacus or whether it's Christians dying in the arena it is often the more dramatic, sensationalized accounts that they are drawing from for their music. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And if metal is nothing else, it is about extravagance. It's about being over the top, okay? (laughs) Loudest, extremes of loudness, okay? Uh, Extremes of just indulgence, uh, of speed, of heaviness, right? And so a very sensationalized account of various figures from antiquity, of course, is going to resonate with that because metal is not about logic and rationality and all of these other things that E.R. Dodds put to bed with the Greeks and the irrational, right? Metal sees plenty of the irrational in antiquity that it uh, it finds uh, compelling, right? Well, thank you for indulging my Spartacus obsession. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> I think this is an excellent spot to to sort of like launch into the final question for this sure. conversation, actually, which is how do you think the reception of ancient Greece and Rome in metal music has evolved over time? Because mm-hmm. it sounds like it's it's got the capacity to embrace many facets and become deeply complicated in the way that it engages with elements of Christianity, elements of the ancient past. 
Okay, yeah. So classical reception in metal was very sparse in the, you know, by the 1980s, you start seeing some interest in like, with songs like Alexander the Great, there's some songs on Spartacus, Caligula, Nero, kind of the the big figures that are well known in popular culture. And there's some songs here and there. But it's not really until you get to the 21st century that you start seeing really an explosion of not just songs, but also, again, concept albums and even bands devoted to these themes to the point where there are literally thousands of songs by hundreds of bands on all five continents that at least have a song that is devoted to, you know, themes of Greece, Rome, Egypt, Mesopotamia, etc., and beyond. And I think that has to do with a lot of factors, um, partly because metal just became globalized, but also just a lot more popular to the point where bands just inevitably are going to explore and experiment and eventually, you know, get interested in these things and dig deeper. And I think they'll continue to dig deeper and find new and original things to, to sing about. Right. So there's, so there's that. Also what happened since, you know, the seventies and eighties is that um, there became a lot more metal specifically like genres like black metal and folk metal etc that where the themes were tied to romantic and nationalistic kind of sentiments tied to geography okay? so you had bands in eastern europe that sang about the slavic gods or bands in scandinavia singing about norse mythology bands in greece singing about greek mythology and in fact even there's there's bands in all of those places that they're not only using those themes as sort of a way of reconnecting with what they think is their authentic identity, but as well as sort of rejecting modernity and, and Christianity and all that. But there are also, you know, a lot, there's a lot of, there's overlap between bands that engage in those themes and actual, the actual like resurgence of paganism, right? Of Asa true uh, and Hellenic religion in Greece uh, and various, you know, Slavic ancient Slavic religions that are experiencing resurgence. There's thousands, tens of thousands of, of, of adherents, you know, especially in Europe, but also throughout the world. And so um, there's a lot of overlap between those two groups. So there's that as well. Also, a lot of classical reception in metal is in response to classical reception in wider popular culture. You know, I mentioned earlier that the first song on Caligula Okay, by the French speed metal band ABX was likely inspired by the, the 1970s uh, penthouse flick, okay? and that the original representatives of Nero, you know, seemed to have be the legacy of Quo Vadis, right? So another reason for this explosion of classical reception in metal after the dawn of the 21st century is because that is when films like Gladiator and 300 and Troy and Kingdom of Heaven, you know, etc., this sort of uh, renaissance of sword and sandal, sandal cinema came to the fore. And so bands were largely, you know, inspired by those movies. And so like, for instance, that's when songs on Sparta started happening. Pressfield and Miller put out Gates of Fire and the 300 comic in 1998. And a year later, we have our first song on Sparta called Moment of Truth by uh, S.O.D. And then after 300 came out in 2006, 2007, there's just a ton of bands doing this. And there's, con there's several concept albums on the Battle of Thermopylae at this point. The other reason that is connected to all this is a lot of this reconnecting with pre-modernity also has political 
undertones. Um, this idea that, especially in bands, certain bands in Europe, sort of embracing the Roman Empire, classical Greece, pre-Christian civilization in Scandinavia and elsewhere in Europe, and they're combining it with nationalistic and even, you know, xenophobic and even anti-Semitic politics because they're not only seeing Christianity as this foreign religion that had come in and erased their traditions, right? But they're also connecting Christianity to Judaism, you know, and identifying it with that. And they're sort of seeing, they're sort of, again, creating this sort of monolith of the East that is clashing against the monolith that is the West, that they identify with. It's this kind of a orientalized self and other kind of phenomenon, right? And I think in a post 9-11 world, these themes became compelling because they resonated with these sort of these sort of sentiments where suddenly, you know, certain bands in Europe and, and North America, they watched 300 and basically said, oh, okay, uh, this, uh, this appeals to me. And I think this is, I can write a metal song about this. So there's a lot of factors. I think for the most part, you know, you can't just read those kind of politics into all of the reception of these things. It's a lot of it is just they saw a cool movie or what they thought was a cool movie. And they thought that, you know, this is pretty metal. This would be good for a metal song. And they didn't really think much beyond that. Yeah. So there aren't many bands that are necessarily engaging with the sources themselves. It's mostly probably from popular culture then, or maybe their own backgrounds where they might have grown up going to church and hearing Mm -hmm. stories of martyrdom, do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there's certainly, I wrote a book chapter on Metal in Sparta that's coming out next year or the year after. And there are certainly plenty of songs where if you read the lyrics, they are either directly quoting 300 or they're representing the Battle of Thermopylae, you know, as it is in the, in, in the graphic oh, novel no. or, the, or the film. But the um, Persians aren't lobster people, guys. Right. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, there's, but there's also a lot of sort there's, there's also evidence that there are, they are reading Herodotus, but even Herodotus is, you know, representing the is biased right and is representing you know the the greek a greek very greek point of view that you know they are they're taking and running with there's a there's a band called jag panzer that uh wrote a song about achilles not long after the movie troy came out and it refers to patroclus as his cousin uh so that's another example but i'm quite i'm quite fascinated and i'm uh i'm doing research to this on the moment uh just sort of the the relationship between metals classical reception and that phenomenon in cinema because there seems to be a lot that they're getting from it and that's sort of kind of how metal has been since the start you know black sabbath named themselves black sabbath because that's the name of of a 60s horror film and one of the first instances of classical reception in metal period was in 1981 by a british band called angel witch it was 1981 or 1980 and they wrote a song called the gorgon Right. And you're like, oh, it's about Medusa. Well, if you read the lyrics, uh, it's actually about a 60s horror film starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee called The Gorgon. And the premise of the film is that the spirit or something of a Gorgon lived on into modern times and had possessed some woman uh, who was basically terrorizing this town. Right. Um, and I won't spoil the I won't spoil the, the rest of the film. It's, uh, 
I watched it. I watched it over Halloween, uh, and it's it's pretty campy. But hey, it's got Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. So. I was going to say, with those two in it, it would still be enjoyable, regardless. <laughs> yeah. now, I, I found I've now found a way into metal. I was never interested in metal, and now I realize there's a connection to movies, so I'm on board. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, I think there's a lot of crossover with metal and just in horror films especially and i think it's the same in this i think i i talked about this at the very start of our session here is the idea that we are drawn to these themes of extremes of human nature and you know the consequences of them and i think it's similar to the way that like greek tragedy is so attracts people even though like there's stories of like oedipus and all of the gross things he did and and like thyestes and and it's like why are why do we find these tragic heroes compelling why do we find these stories compelling and i think it's that just there's just that instinct to be drawn to this oh we like to think of ourselves as highly rational creatures but really we're far more emotional (laughs) right 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 and everybody struggles, I think, with the things that have come through passing thoughts in their mind where they're like, that was completely inappropriate. And where did that even come from? Mm-hmm. And genres like this and being able to explore through music or through cinema or through whatever means is really important, I think, because mm-hmm. these are these are problems that well, they're not even problems. They're just things that happen to people. And it's clearly part of the human psyche. Mm-hmm. And you've got this kind of unfiltered sense of your own reality through your exploration of thought. And it's like, well, how do I navigate that mm-hmm. in in a social context? And mm-hmm. having ways to do that, I think, is vitally important. And it seems like this is something that metal music is offering to a lot of people as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I think you I think you articulated that um, very well. It's like you know, you think about death metal. It's you know, and you have these these lyrics about just like these awful things happening to the human body and yet this is appealing to somebody this is dealing with mortality the fact that we're made of how fragile we are that this this can happen to us and that there's people who are capable of doing this to people it's like we want to be scared by this <laughs> almost i think it again it has that sort of therapeutic effect like almost like what aristotle talked about you know where it's this you know the pity and fear that arises and um, it sort of allows us to exercise those emotions in a safe context, right? It's like playing total war. It's like playing, engaging in these, these fantasies of violence and, and power that heavy metal kind of offers, you know, is sort of a way for us to cope with kind of the powerlessness we feel in our, our normal reality where we have to control ourselves and, you know, put on a mask when in fact it's uh, it's just a facade. Well, thank you so much for telling us all about it. I must admit that my only real exposure to metal music, I think was in a brief scene in Ace Ventura before talking to you today, but now I have fantasies of really death metal kind of people sitting around reading Eusebius. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, that is quite possible. But uh, <laughs> what I like about metal is that it's while it originally started as sort of this kind of music for these sort of working class white male alienated youths in places like Birmingham. Right. And this is something that appealed to them. But I think that its appeal is universal. Right. People of all classes, colors and creeds listen to this music and 
I think it's it's something that there always should be, you know, some force of opposition to keep us from being complacent, to, to remind us that things don't have to be the way they are and that um, and that is a universal message, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think taking that revolutionary spirit um, is a fantastic uh, sentiment to, to end upon as well. So thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks to you both. I enjoyed this conversation and uh, thanks again for having me on. An absolute pleasure.